Now we'll get into it. As you know, we're taking a break from our study in Romans, and we're quickly coming upon Christmas. I'm sure that some of you have already begun decorating for the season. Lights, trees, ornaments, stockings, and a nativity scene will undoubtedly find themselves as a fixture of your homes for the next six weeks. Now those of you who know me well know that I'm not the most Christmassy guy. I don't celebrate in the traditional sense. I don't decorate my house. I don't set up a tree, and I don't super enjoy Christmas music. It's okay. Please forgive me. I won't get into all my reasons why this morning. I just mention that to say that it's fitting that I start out our Advent season by sharing John's account of Christmas. See, in John's gospel, there's no nativity scene. There's no manger. There's no animals. There's no angel speaking to a young couple, and there's no virgin birth. Well, all these are wonderful details about the physical birth of Emmanuel, of God with us. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all provide us with great insight and clarity on how the Son of God came into this world to fulfill God's plan of redemption and love that he had authored since before he created anything. But John does something different. John pulls us all the way back to before creation. He takes us back to eternity past and to the forming of the world as we know it. Guys, let's open our Bibles to John 1, and we'll just read his account, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Guys, let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your character, for your nature, for who you are. We thank you for sending your son into this world that he may be a light for us. That his sacrifice redeems us. We thank you for reconciliation. That we may know you and be known by you. We ask that as we get into your word this morning, you open our hearts and our minds and deepen our understanding of you. Teach us through your word. Father, use my mouth as a conduit for your glory. Jesus, in your holy and perfect name, amen. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In these two short verses, we are immediately given some insight and clarity on who Jesus is. John is starting us off by laying the foundation for the themes that he's going to expound upon throughout his gospel account. Light, life, grace, and truth, all found resting solely upon the person of the God-man, Jesus Christ. In the beginning, before time, the beginning of the beginning was this word. And this word was both with God and was God. He was in the beginning with God. So right out of the gate, We're two sentences into John's gospel, and we already have to pause and wrestle through something about the nature of God. Is this polytheism? Are we talking about more than one God? This word was God, but was also with God. How can we reconcile that with other clear biblical passages like we studied in James 2.19 earlier in the year? says, you believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Or Deuteronomy 32, 39, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Or Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. 
Or there's a hundred other passages that boldly declare that there is but one God. So how do we reconcile this? I think to understand this, we have to understand the triune nature of this one God. It's one God, but it's found unified in three distinct and different persons. The Father is not the Son, nor is the Son the Father. They are each their own person. Neither the Father nor the Son are the Spirit, but all three together are one God. Singular and unified in omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence. Meaning, all-powerful, all-knowing, and all places at all times. Not one is more or less God than the next, but all three working in Congress with one another make up the Godhead. If we follow John's gospel back to the words that he is echoing, back to Genesis 1, 1 and 2, we can see all three working together from eternity past to create the world that we know. In the beginning, God. There's the Father created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, there's God the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the waters. And God said, there's the Son, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, saying, let there be light. And there was light. So if we keep reading into verse 3 of the Gospel of John, we see this laid out for us pretty plainly. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. All things were made through this word, who was both with God and was God. That word that was with God that was God, was the creation agent for every single thing that has been made. Displaying the fullness of the power of God. And in him was life. And the life was the light of men. As John progresses us through this account of existence, he gives us a little more insight into this word, informing us that this word is in fact a him, a personal being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Guys, there's something really profound about the salvation of men being explained to us through this account. And also through the account of creation itself in Genesis that John is drawing us back to. Men are born in darkness. And when God says, let there be light, he gives life unto men. This is a spiritual rebirth that John explains to us in verse 13 who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. 
This rebirth is not of our own doing. It's not something that we can strive to attain. It's not by our own efforts to present ourselves as righteous or by our own self-justification of our own perceived goodness. None of our works will ever be good enough to earn our way to life everlasting. And if you think they will, or if you boast in your own goodness, then the answer from me is really simple. Repent. Turn back to the God who bought your life with his very own. This rebirth is of God alone. It's for his glory and his purposes. Guys, this is the gospel. Men born in sin are made alive through Christ, by the will of God, through faith, by his grace, all for the glory of God alone. We see John lay this out in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, adopted into righteous. We see John deepen this explanation a few chapters later. It's that famous passage that we all probably memorized when we were kids, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen to that. I think part of the problem is, though, is we stop there. We cut Jesus off mid-thought, and we don't just let him speak and finish what he's saying. So let's go there now. John 3.16, and we'll read through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, Jesus is explaining to us the action steps of what our belief in him looks like. See, true belief drives us to step into the light and let it penetrate the darkness we carry. And cleanse us. But men love their sin. And will choose to stay in the darkness. And to hold on tightly to their evil works. 
Those who believe are not condemned because we allow his light to expose our darkness, but his judgment stays upon those who love the dark, who operate in the shadows, who love their sin. Now, this isn't a command for us to work really hard to clean ourselves up or present an image of ourselves as spotless or sinless. This is an invitation from God to come to him just as we are in our sin and allow his love and light to bring us to life. There's a thread here that John explains a little bit in his first epistle letter. So if we could turn to 1 John, we'll read chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is John once again. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is the grace that Christ shows to us. We are all sinners. But if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to both forgive us and to make us clean of all our unrighteousness. It's his work. We are his workmanship. And he who began a good work in us will see it through to the day of completion. It's not our work to make ourselves righteous. If we say we have no sin, we're just deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we go one step further and say that we have not ever sinned, we are just calling God a liar. Guys, we have to come to the realization within ourselves that we are not good. Humans are not good. We are sinful, unrighteous creatures. God alone is good. Without that realization, we will never experience the fullness of Jesus Christ. But once we do come to that place, we can seek mercy from a God who is true and trustworthy when he tells us that he will forgive us and cleanse us of all our sin. This passage from 1 John is explaining to us not only how we can walk in the light with Jesus, 
But it's also telling us in verse 7 how we can walk in this humility of owning our sin from a genuine heart and have fellowship with one another as members of the body. And his shed blood will be the thing cleaning us all up. This is where Jesus says to us in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus is telling us to stop striving for our own righteousness. To stop aiming to boast on our own goodness. To stop laboring with this heavy burden of making ourselves good enough for God and just to come to him. To confess to him that we're not good and we can't make ourselves good. And he will give us rest for our sorrowed souls. And he will teach us how to be gentle and lowly in heart. That's where we're told even our best works are that of dirty rags. Apart from Christ's righteousness, we have no righteousness at all. When we compare ourselves to his perfect standard, we all fall short. Let your hearts be broken over your sin and return to him who can provide comfort. Psalm 51.17 tells us, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. See, our God doesn't require us to present ourselves as happy and good all the time. He doesn't require us to wear a mask in order to advance his kingdom. He doesn't tell us to perform. But as James would tell us in chapter 9, or chapter 4, 9, and 10, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. See, James tells us this with a promise, the verse prior. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Not draw near to God and he might draw near to you. Not make yourself good enough to come to God and then maybe he'll pull out the checklist and tell you where you're falling short. No, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Just as you are. In all your sin, in all your failures, in all your weakness. Just come. Let it purify you. Be blessed and forgiven and fully satisfied in the Lord. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses us all on the same level without partiality. Guys, we are all in the same boat. We're sinners. As he proclaims to us that the kingdom of God is close at hand and that we may become citizens of it, 
Jesus teaches us what we will look like when we surrender all of ourselves to him. The Beatitudes, right? We must realize that we are poor in righteousness. And he will make us rich by giving us his. We must mourn our sin, and he is faithful to cleanse us of it. We must humble ourselves before the Lord, and he will faithfully ride us into battle for his kingdom. We must starve ourselves of wickedness and instead hunger for righteousness and he will feed our souls. We must realize our guilty state before him and beg him for mercy. For then it makes it far easier to be merciful to those around us. We must purify our hearts and make war on unrighteousness for the sake of peace. Even at the sake of being persecuted and reviled because of the name of God Jesus and who he is and what he stands for. And he will bring us to a place of rejoicing. For our reward is great in heaven. Because Jesus, the word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Jesus, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. This should break our hearts and leave us rejoicing all at the same time. Now I know this isn't the warm and fuzzy Christmas message that we all may want, but this is the truth of God unto salvation. So the words of our king who came to break the chains of slavery that keep us in bondage to the kingdom of darkness. The king who came to set the captives free. Is the words of our God who came not to save the self-righteous, but to call the sinners into his glorious light. The God who sought out the outcasts and sat with the broken, who comforts the lowly and welcomes the disenfranchised. The God who will return at a time we do not know to judge both the living and the dead. The God who tells us to get ready and stay ready, to abide in him and live in the light. Not by works of our own hands, in our own obedience to the law that was given through Moses, but by the grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ. See, the law was given to us because of our transgression, because of our sin because of our own evil hearts. The law was not given as a means of self-will to fulfill, but as a way to show us the wretched state of our own hearts so that we may come to God and be forgiven and forever changed so that he gets the glory and not ourselves. This is why I took us back to the Sermon on the Mount. 
Because in that sermon, Jesus takes the law of Moses that people were boasting on their own goodness for upholding, and Jesus deepens it to the heart of every man. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say, if you have hatred for your brother in your heart, you have killed him already. We're all guilty. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you look at another with lustful intent, you are guilty already. This law wasn't about performance. It was about the heart. What's going on internally within us? See, Jesus isn't impressed with our outward show. He's not concerned with our performance or how nice the image is that we present, or how whitewashed the tomb is. Jesus is concerned with the inward person, the heart of man, which Jeremiah 17.9 tells us are deceitful above all else and desperately sick. In verse 10, the Lord tells us that he searches and tests our heart to give us according to what is in them. Ouch. If you look in the mirror honestly and examine yourself, you don't want to be judged by what's in your heart. This is the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus took our sin upon himself and nailed it to that cross. That on the day of judgment, we may be judged with his righteousness. Not according to our own evil hearts. This is the beauty of Jesus. That he made this way for us to come to him in our sin, even though God is so holy that he can't look upon it. Makes a way for peace and reconciliation with him based on his own work. That's where he calls to us. In the midst of the muck and the mire that we find ourselves in, And he aims to pull us up out of it and give us new life in him. To call on him for mercy with full understanding of how unholy we truly are compared to his perfect light. And then step into it. As scary as that is, knowing that he is good, that he is faithful, and that he is true. He will forgive. He will clean. And all who cry out to God from a genuine heart will be saved. Call upon him. For today is the day of salvation. Step into the light. Let him do his work within your heart to purify you, make you white as snow before his eyes.
Take courage, my son. The Spirit says, come. Be set free. Guys, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for loving wretched sinners like us, for caring of us, for being a God who is mindful of man. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark without a beacon. Thank you for making a way to be reconciled with you. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for coming, for taking our sin upon yourself, for paying our debt. Work within our hearts. Break us if you have to. Draw us to yourself. Help us to follow after you and step into your perfect light. Jesus, in your perfect and holy name, we thank you for all you've done for who you are. And in your perfect name, we thank you. Amen. Have a good day, guys.